Bucker sees a lot of death. Baseball helps get him through it. So does a faith that pure evil is still very rare. And there's that smiling photo that sits atop a messy desk. Every time someone dies at another's hand in Tulsa, Dave Walker shows up to try to figure out who and why. There is a reason why this person's dead. Your job's to go find it. In the seven years he's overseen the Tulsa Police Department's Homicide Division, Sergeant Walker and the detectives who share the office with him have had to find over 450 reasons why. They've gotten there over 95% of the time, one of the highest solve rates of the country's big city police departments. But what's the toll on a man, one who shows up at every murder, no matter the time or day, who sees the absolute worst of humanity week after week and lives with it 24 hours a day? You have to care about this. So we learned early on, you care. If you don't care, you're not gonna be doing this 24 hours a day. It's that caring ability to, to just work until you get it done mm -hmm. and not allowing no answer to be the answer. For years, I've watched the video of him walking about, usually with a clipboard or notepad, ducking beneath crime scene tape, and wondered how he faces one bloody scene after another. Turns out by the time the cameras capture him here, He's already taken the time to consider not only what's just happened, but what's about to come. I personally will, will take a minute, 30 seconds, whatever, go away and, and realize, wow, you know, this, this is somewhere along the line, we're going to have to tell somebody their loved one's dead and that's going to be a bad deal. There are nine of them here on the sixth floor of police headquarters, surrounded by shelves full of sadness, the lives whose tragic ends intertwined with theirs because a bad decision was made a wrong path followed. Decision making is a big part of, of victimology. You know, our victims made a bad choice somewhere along the line. Others just had the bad luck to run across evil, though Sergeant Walker insists, after all he's seen, that pure evil is not a common human trait. And what I have to say is there are so many more of the good people than they are of the true evil. That, that this world is so much better off. You can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant. He's got a few things that temper the terrible. Grandkids are good for that. Baseball's a big part of the, how I keep my mind off of what we're doing out here. And on a floor filled with the stairs of sadness in his messy office, atop a messy desk, is a smile. She can feel the, the same compassion. She can put herself in the family spot. She, she will... Uh, tear up when you talk about the, some of the cases. That's Johnny. She and Dave have been together for 21 years. She helps get him through it. Sometimes it, it, it it's a grind because we're done here and we go home and have to explain what we did at work today. Uh, so, but she's very understanding when it comes to that. Are you a man that shows your emotion very easily? Uh, <laughs> I wonder, uh, does anything you see ever make you cry? Yeah, uh, Scott, I knew you are probably going to ask that question, and uh, to answer that, we cry alone. They cry alone in a room filled with tear-stained stories. They cry alone. That's just the way it is. At least publicly, Sergeant Walker has not set a firm retirement day, though it will be this year. Scott Thompson, two works for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of You and the Law Podcast show. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, Virgil Green. And as always, I got to introduce the bearded, the bearded brother, the gray-headed bearded brother who sits to the right of me, goes by the name of Chief Swaggy, 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 Swaggy One. What else? <laughs> what else? What? 
I mean, you left something off. The Beast. All right. The Beast. <laughs> okay. That's fine. That's fine, man. I, I just, you know, we have a guest tonight, and I'm going to be have nice. A, we have a very special guest, man, I tell we you. We do. We do. And I'm going to be nice. I'm going to yeah. be nice. You know, he, he is he's known from coast to coast. He is. The, the, he's a good man. Sergeant Walker looked like, huh? Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> you know, if you've ever heard that, that you know, we've all watched the, the first 48, and when you hear that intro uh, and you see the, the Tulsa uh, homicide detective, the, one of the, the main figures of that you're going to see uh, before he retired would have been uh, Sergeant Dave Walker, who, uh, man, you uh, the experience that you – that you bring uh, is 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 a lot, and so we thank you for uh, coming on our podcast to talk about uh, another informative topic. And uh, so, for all of those who are tuning in and listening, you know, if you got any questions, put those in the chat, and uh, we'll definitely get to those. But Sergeant Walker, you know, introduce yourself to to our listeners. Uh, we are list- we're streaming live on Facebook Live. We're streaming live on LinkedIn. And we're also streaming live on our YouTube channel. Well, hello, all those people. And I'll let you in on a secret. The, the people on the East Coast and West Coast, uh, they don't know who the heck I am. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're not really around from Tulsa, you, you might not know that. At least that's what the uh, the TV producer said. Uh, but I am retired, and uh, I still care. And I, I still believe that that we can get this right law enforcement can get this right the community can get this right and we just need to keep working towards that goal and you know podcasts like this chief uh, green chief humphrey are, are a way that we can get out in front uh, of the regular folks when it's not really edited so uh and i believe that that just brings uh truth to what we're saying you know, you know first 48 gets edited a little bit yeah so you don't see us drop the gun on in critical situations. They get to edit that out. Uh, well, you so. know what? You know what, Sergeant Walker? You, you said something important, and I've said this before. I, I I can't give up on the profession, and I can't give up on the on the communities. I, I just I just think there's more good people than than bad, and I just think at some point, uh, good is going to prevail. I I just really believe that. That, that's good to hear <laughs> because yeah. I really believe that, that uh, as long as, as the good keep moving, uh, we will overcome the evil. And, you know, there isn't really an option except to keep moving forward. A lot of us get older and we retire and you guys are going to feel that same way. Uh, you just got to pass it on. And what we pass on is our legacy. Um, yeah, I concur. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. You know, it's what you pass on to this new generation of men and women who are getting into this profession and and to make, you know, get into it for the right reason uh, and make sure you follow that path throughout that career. Because as you know, Sergeant Walker, that, you know, there's been a, policing has been in the news a lot uh, over the last several decades and not for all the right reasons. And we hear more or the wrong reasons than we hear of the right reasons. And so uh, I think, you know, we all have a, an obligation to to try to uh, 
be an influence to to young people who get into this profession. Yeah, and it still amazes me, even though the, the what you just said, uh, we've got men and women, and I've got two kids in law enforcement uh, that are willing to to dress up and put the badge and gun on and go out there every day and mm-hmm. serve the community. So, so God love those people that that will do that and yeah. carry on. Yeah. So, are are they with uh, Tulsa or other agencies in Oklahoma? Or? Uh, I've got one son that works patrol in the Tulsa Police Department and one that works in uh, the county. Tulsa oh. County is an investigator. Okay. Okay. All right. Sergeant Walker, let me let me ask you a question. Um, and, and and to the listeners and the viewers, uh, you know, they, they hear about detectives. Um, and um, but I don't think that they know that it takes a special person to be a homicide detective. Uh, kind of talk about what um, piqued your interest and in being a homicide detective. And then what made you stay the, the tenure that you did? And, and um, you know, what, what would you pass on to any other young man or young woman who um, aspires to, to possibly go into um, the homicide division? I guess first thing is that everybody know that it's not like on the uh, first 48 law and order. <laughs> well, it's not like a law and order CSI. Yeah. That's not, this is not the way crimes are solved within 45 minutes, but you can kind of talk about that. Well, uh, I can talk personally from my career in 82. When I first thought I was going to be in law enforcement, I went to a, uh, an interview in Independence, Missouri, and it was a one-on-one interview with a captain or a lieutenant or somebody, and and he sat there and he said, well, why do you want to be a cop? And I honestly said, I want to help people. And he pretty much, you know, I, don't know, I thought he was going to come across the table and hit me. He goes, you know, right, people's <laughs> ticket is, is going to help them. And I said, well, I just, I care about, you know, the folks. Uh, needless to say, when, when I interviewed for Tulsa, it was a totally different uh response and atmosphere more professional and uh man when i hit the streets it was it was a good feeling every day i was making a difference somewhere and learning things and you can never stop learning and i was lucky enough to get promoted after seven years on the street in in the patrol car uh to sergeant and you know lucky for the city i couldn't promote any higher Uh, but that is the best job in my my opinion and it was the best job for me so I did the best thing I could do wherever I was. I started 10 years in undercover work, uh, learned how to work the field, write reports. Uh, you got to supervise men and women. So that was all a big part of that. You guys know that. Um, personnel issues are, are a pain in the rear end. Uh, oh, yeah. But that's why sergeants are a lot better because we can be a pain in your rear end. But <laughs> uh <laughs> So I moved from undercover to to internal affairs for a year, realized that that wasn't a good fit, and then went to burglary investigations and robbery and and then homicide. And each one of those spots is is real specific. And I I firmly believe if you're going to be the best you can be, law enforcement's a good place to be where you can be focused on on just burglaries, if you have that option, or robberies or murders. And... You're not going to be any good at any of those if you don't have a caring heart. If you don't care that somebody lost their stuff and go out and find that bike for that kindergartner kid 
and give it back to the family. Uh, just the, the, the look in their face is astronomical. It just gives you a good feeling. So you want to go to work every day. You don't want to be on vacation. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, as you go up, the progression was robbery, and, and that was a little different. I used to say burglars won't kill you. Robbers might, and, and killers are already proven they will. So you got to be a little bit more careful and tactical. But uh, it's the same caring attitude that, that you, I look for in my detectives. Uh, you know, you get, you get the young kids to say, I'm going to be a homicide detective. Well, you know, go out there and, and stay up for 23 hours and then tell me you want to be a homicide detective. Right. Uh, miss, miss Thanksgiving with your kids. And, uh, those are things that, that we have to look for. You don't have to be the biggest and baddest and the best. You just got to mm -hmm. be willing to do it. And, and to the listeners and the viewers out there, what I want to also uh, reiterate is what Sergeant Walker said. Uh, homicide is not an eight to five job. Uh, it's a 24 seven, 365. And, you know, just because you're working one homicide doesn't mean another one's not going to happen. And, and I'm sure part he'll talk about is he might have four or five on his desk. Uh, and that might even be a low number for certain cities that he's still working. So his job and his job is not just, you know, I'm dealing with this one. It's, it's, it's dealing with ongoing, uh, ongoing problems. And, but how did you stay, how did you stay passionate about it? I mean, I've seen young men and young women that go up there in the homicide for six months and it's like, I've had enough, but then I've seen those, um, with your tenure, uh, they go to work, they're smiling, they enjoy it. Uh, you know, they, they, they really, really, uh, are passionate about the family, about the victim. They don't dehumanize the victims. Man, how do you, I mean, I know you talked about your grandkids and things like that, but man, how do you keep that, that mindset uh, after all that you, that you've seen and all that, that, that you saw daily or however many times you went out? Well, the mindset comes because you're making a difference, absolutely making a difference in the world. Um, killers approve that if you don't catch them, they'll kill again. Uh, the families, it doesn't matter who the victim is, um, you know, from what walk of life. They could be an innocent victim walking to school, or they could have been an armed robber that, that got killed by his partner for whatever reason. Uh, when we go to the family, there's somebody that loved that, that victim. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter who the victim is, that family's going to react. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we live it. And if you can't live it, and you can't feel what they're feeling, uh, you're, you're not going to get after it. And, and uh, Tulsa, every city's got those people that will do that. And yeah. we're good with that. Yeah. Well, you know, Sergeant Walker, one of the uh, your comments uh, that you shared on LinkedIn uh, prior to the podcast where you stated that you had never thought about uh, uh, bias uh in police investigations and you know so you've been in homicide you know for what you were in the homicide for what over seven years right uh and you know and i think a lot of people uh don't really understand the role that you the what do you all do every single day and you go from one scene to another and you mentioned the fact that 
even a, a person who's been killed, say in a in a, you know, it's maybe a retaliation gang shooting, but that's somebody's son, that's somebody's brother, and and so one of the things as we were talking about putting this pot this topic together is that is there bias in police investigations, and it could that bias you know, uh, not be intentional, but because of the person of that individual, uh, is there times where maybe, hey, you know, this is a gang retaliation, uh, it, where we may not put that much investigation into it because of the type of individuals that are associated with the crime. Well, personally, no, we never did that. Uh, man, when I got the phone call, it could be three o'clock in the morning, whatever it is. All I needed to know is we had a dead body, where it was, and what kind of scene did I have? Uh, so I try to decide who, how many people I need to call in. Uh, is there bias in police investigations? You know, you all w would turn me off if I said no. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, there absolutely is, but you can't do that and be an investigator. Um, I would suggest, or I would think that, that those departments that have a lot of bias in their investigations, when they assign cases, the way they do Intel work, um, the way they keep track of, of the shootings that are non-fatal, uh, their, their solve rate's gotta be low mm -hmm. because you're just not going to get the information you need from the city. Uh, yeah. I think Tulsa, as you see it on the first 48, but you, even before then, we were solving them. Yeah. Because so, the people know that we care. Yeah. So uh, let our listeners know what is uh, Tulsa's uh, homicide solve, you know, the, the rate that you all solve these crimes? Well, I, I can say uh, Sergeant Mycuff is who I took it from, uh, took mm -hmm. over from, and he was about an 80% solve rate. Mm -hmm. which is really high. And so when I came in and took over, I said, well, what can I do to make it better? <laughs> because you're yeah. already solving more. Yeah. And so we did. We, we hired the right folks, and they came in, and we made it better. We were up to 96% uh, pretty much in those seven years. So that's a high rate, and that's not us. It's how we relate to people and how you yeah. Well, and, you know – go ahead, Keith. Yeah, I have two things. So, So – how did how do you what are you looking for in a homicide detective? That's number one. And number two, Sergeant, would you uh, attribute the um, the high solvability, the, the high uh, rate that you all have in solving these cases? Would you contribute that to the relationship, the community policing, 21st century policing, the relationship that the police department has with the community? Uh, backwards first, yes. Uh, the community has to get involved. We're not there when the crime happens. I mean, when, when somebody gets killed, we don't know who did it. Um, and, and there's automatic apprehension uh, in any place for people to talk to us, uh, talk to law enforcement, especially about a murder. Uh, we can break that down just by getting out there and being real. And we use the way that I did it was I talked in the media. If the media asked me a question at three o'clock in the morning, I answered the call and gave them an answer. 
uh, it was honest and open communication, kind of like we're doing here. There wasn't, it wasn't structured. It wasn't say, don't talk about this. Don't talk about that. I don't want to talk about biases in, in, in investigations because that makes me uncomfortable. Well, we got to be uncomfortable. So, um, the community responds to that. So our high solve rate is Tulsa's high solve rate. It's not the Tulsa Police Department. If people would just bury themselves and not talk to us, we wouldn't solve these. And that's obvious to us. Uh, what do I look for in, a, in an investigator? It is I, I got to have a family guy. And I don't need one out running around because I don't need a drunk out there <laughs> trying to solve it. <laughs> Right, yeah. somebody I need to wake up and, and get in when I ask them for it. And we, we've got that. I, I would mm -hmm. call people at all hours of the day and night. And here they come. And, mm -hmm. man, there's no better feeling when you run a squad like that uh, that will uh, respond that way and, and get after it. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to go back and touch on, you know, you said, you know, it was about a 90 percent, uh, you know, solvable of, of homicides. Which was, keep in mind, Virgil, the national rate is like the national rate is about 59 to 60 percent. Yeah, under 60 percent, somewhere around yeah. there. Yeah. And in Tulsa, you know, to to your credit and to all of the other detectives is one of the highest in the nation. And and so uh, I think, you know, and I don't you know, we might get into the first 48, you know, was was uh there was a lot of episodes in Tulsa, like it was in Atlanta and some other departments. But I don't know did that kind of help uh, guide or influence that show to really get embedded with you all in, in Tulsa. The, the high solve rate. Well, well, not just the high solvable rate, but just how you all went about conducting these investigations because. As everybody know, you know, it, that theme, you got 48 hours to really help solve this here crime. And as you know, some of those go way beyond 48. But how was that any uh, an influence or how did that really uh, embed that those producers of that show to uh, to be in Tulsa? Well, I think Chief Jordan at the time brought in the first 48 so he, yeah he, and you guys know how that works chiefs when you yeah. charge and make it work well we'll make it work yeah and, and really it's a credit to the producers and the first 48 the itv folks that, that came down here and, and brandon and adam and luke and, and those camera folks uh they're good people they mm -hmm. stayed away and they didn't come in and start bossing us around they didn't say hey can you do this and do that uh, they stayed in the background and they became our friends Mm -hmm. And every morning after a murder, we would have a huddle. And eventually those guys are joining in the huddle saying, no, I don't remember that. I think this guy did it. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> so, really? You know, we were, you know, and they're not supposed to do that. So don't get them in trouble. But uh, <laughs> we didn't review the video or any of that. But, but they really are our friends. And, and if we were wrong, they would say, no, I don't remember it that way. And, and so uh, the first 48, you know, eventually you forget they're there until you watch the show and yeah. then you remember it and you know they're, they're, they didn't change the way we worked mm -hmm. they just recorded what we did and yeah. that helps us in the, in the community yeah yeah hey sergeant do you think uh uh chief green 
could narrate? Does he have that voice that he could narrate? You know, yeah. I just, I just, you know, I don't think, I don't think Don's quitting, but <laughs> yes, he does. And both of you guys can get on there and say whatever you said. You know, you know, Sergeant Walker, that I have to, I didn't know who Don was until, uh, I was watching something and the people were talking, you know, who's the voice behind the first 48. And when I saw who the person was and you put the voice together and I'm just like this, nobody knows who Don is. It's just a voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He he does. He does catch it. I mean, it's kind of like you're opening to the podcast. You'll kind of listen if he's saying something. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. hey, Sarge, we were Sergeant, we were talking earlier about some disheartening uh comments that uh we talked <laughs> last week or a couple of weeks ago, I believe, regarding um uh homicides in Jackson, Mississippi. And you know, it we understand that throughout the nation police departments are short-staffed. We, we understand it. But what I always say is no matter how short-staffed we are, we still have to find a way to deliver the top quality service that our community um, deserves. But when you, um, when you, when you, when they were talking about homicides, uh, it was simply like it was just another crime. I mean, it was like there was no passion or no empathy for the fact that someone lost their lives. And, there were mothers that were telling stories about how they've called and called and called. They can't get a call. Uh, when they do get a call, it's basically like, well, what do you want me to do? Or, um, Hey, I've told you we've done everything. Um, if you get some additional information, let me know. Uh, if you want to go out there and try to solve it, you know, do that. and so that was really disturbing. And, I don't know if Virgil has that clip. Yeah, but I do. And I yeah, was just. Yeah. yeah and me, so me, it was just, it, when you see it, you're going to be, it's going to upset you because I know how you are and how your department is and how my department was and how Virgil's department is. But yeah, Virgil, you have that. Let him see see that. And, and to the viewers and listeners that didn't see it, I think it's going to really be somewhat disturbing and embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, uh, a C- it's done by CBS and it's called The Mothers of uh, Jackson, Mississippi. We are continuing our series, Crime Without Punishment, that looks at the disturbing rise in unsolved murders in the U.S. Welcome back to CBS Mornings. Our investigation uncovered a troubling racial disparity. Murder cases are far less likely to be solved if the victim is Hispanic or black. Jackson, Mississippi has experienced a spike in killings with more than 150 murders last year and about four in 10 remain unsolved. Chief Investigative Correspondent Jim Maxerod went to Jackson to see the toll of unsolved murders on the relatives of those who have been killed. Jim, good morning. Good morning. There are the numbers and the pain behind the numbers. We traveled to Jackson last month to meet with a small group of mothers who'd lost their sons. What we found was a community seething with frustration that more isn't being done to track down the killers of their children. We also found an overwhelmed police department that says it can't possibly keep pace with the violence. Everyone in this room who has had a member of their family murdered, raise your hand. When we started calling mothers who'd lost their children to murder in Jackson, Mississippi, word got around. 
and more than 30 people arrived for our interview. Put your hands up if you feel like you've had to investigate your own loved one's death. The pain in this room in Jackson was overwhelming. They didn't investigate my case. And more just kept coming, wanting their stories heard. Even the text when I talked to them, they hung the phone up in my face. Willie Mack is himself a former homicide detective at the Jackson Police Department. What an ambulance His daughter was shot to death in 2017. Hang on, how many years were you with Jackson PD? 24 years. You had 24 years in? And when you call the detective investigating your daughter's death, you don't get your calls returned? I don't get no call returned. To understand better the depth of their suffering, we sat down with three mothers from the group. My son, his name is Kellen Thompson, Jr. He was murdered April the 1st, 2021. Zachary Ryan Robinson. He was murdered on April 29th of 2014. Ryan, he was murdered November 26, 2020 on Thanksgiving, a day after my birthday. Margie Allen, Danita Williams, and Lucinda Wade Robinson are talking about their sons, all younger than 22, all gunned down in the city of Jackson, Mississippi. Population, 153,000. Has there been any arrest made in either of these three cases? No. no. Mm -mm. Not one arrest? I was showed a picture of my baby on the side of the road. I was showed some information, and I was told to go solve my own crime. Go solve your own crime? And bring them the evidence, and I would take it to them. In Jackson, the capital of Mississippi, the numbers are stunning. 156 homicides last year, one of the highest per capita homicide rates in the entire country. Do you feel murder is being treated differently here? Murder is at the bottom of the totem pole. It's normal. A young black male is gonna die tomorrow. We have three over the weekend. We can't get to you right now. The whole system is backlogged. James Davis is the chief of the Jackson Police Department. Does not solving homicide cases erode the trust the community has in the police department? Well, of course, we tell these, these citizens the truth. We don't tell them that we can solve a case without the facts, you know? Chief Davis told us Jackson PD's ability to solve murder cases depends on processing evidence at the state crime lab, which he says is overwhelmed. I can use more police officers. I could use more homicide detectives. But if the state is backed up, the court is backed up, we will still have the same problem by developing these cases that we're already doing. FBI research suggests homicide detectives should oversee no more than five cases per year. Jackson PD has eight full-time detectives. That's enough for 40 murder investigations. Last year alone, they had nearly four times that number. I don't think any police department in the nation can say that they got enough resources. Jackson homicide detective Sergeant Kevin Nash works in an office where each desk is piled high with files. He knows that means victims' relatives aren't going to like the pace of solving their loved one's murder. Sergeant Nash, I talked to him, and he said, uh, well, you know, a lot of y'all come down here and act like y'all children are perfect. I said, no. I said, first of all, I'm not acting like my child is perfect, but my child did not deserve to be human. killed in the street. But Sergeant Nash says he and his colleagues are doing the best they can. 
I'm gonna be honest with you. When your loved one is killed, you can never do enough to solve that case. I call them back when I'm available. It may not be right then when they want to. And remember, if this was your child, you want immediate answers too. I will always tell you that the Jackson Police Department can do a better job. Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba knows all too well what unsolved crime can do to a family. And my brother was shot in the head in Jackson, Mississippi. So we're no friend of crime, right? And no one was ever arrested for that. But points out his police department makes arrests in six out of 10 cases above the national average. I get the feeling no matter how often you talk about it, the tears don't stop. No, no. You just lay in bed no, at night I and do. just cry all night and you get up and try to fight more to get justice for your child. It's too much. Well, it turns out that three weeks after we visited, Jackson police made arrests in the case of Margie Allen's son, a year and a half after his murder. Jackson PD told us it was a long investigation and they just kept following the leads. Now, tomorrow, we'll bring you our third story in the series, which takes us to Baltimore and focus on possible solutions to help police solve more murder cases. The pain is palpable. You can feel it on the screen. Just the fact that one mother would say murder is normal here. It is among the highest per capita uh, homicide rates in the country. The ballroom where these people spoke with us was one of the more um, uh, emotionally riveting, powerful places I've ever yeah. been. We invited just a few, and they just kept, kept coming. coming. But just the fact that the mother said that the police said, go find, go solve it yourself and bring us the evidence. You know, what's wrong with that, Jim? Or Mr. Willie Mack, who's a former yeah. detective. I get that you're back. overwhelmed, but as a grieving mother, nobody wants to hear that. Go solve it yourself. So when we put that question to the detectives, I said, look, the numbers are what they are. These guidelines say we should have five cases. We have four times four, that number. Yeah. We're drinking water from a fire hose here, mm -hmm. and we're doing the best we can. Feel for those families. Yeah, I do too. That weight, it, it lasts forever on top of it. And, and based on what you said, it's also overwhelming for the police. So it's not just that they don't want to do it or that right. they're callous. Right. You're saying it's more of a problem they don't have enough resources, resources to do it. So two days of demonstrating problems tomorrow, a solution okay. pegged exactly at that. Looking right. forward to that. Great job. Thank you job. very much as always. We appreciate it. Well, Sergeant Walker, that, uh, that's a lot to unpack uh, in that clip. Kind of, yeah. Go it ahead. Go, is. go ahead, sir. It, it's it goes to what I was talking about earlier. When they're crying, we're crying. You know, it, it doesn't do us any good to cry right there in front of them. But uh, man, I, I can I can feel it. If we can't solve it, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning on the computer, and that's why I tell you, you got to have a family to, that supports that. My wife would always come in and go, "What are you doing?" You know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something missing, and we just got to find it. Uh, and, you know, murders can be solved. It, it's just we got to get to the right spot at the right time. And uh, to tell, I, I don't know. I don't know really how to answer that. If that's happening, mm -hmm. uh, I can say it doesn't happen in Tulsa because I answered every phone call. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I had, uh, it took us seven years to get uh, Mrs. Caleb. Uh, Martin Caleb's mom, she'd call and call and call, and that crime should have been solved the next day. It was a 2011 case. Mm -hmm. and, and she would always, she'd be on the phone for a half hour. You just have to take it. Yeah. And, you know, and she called me a rock. 
And even after I retired, she kept trying to call. But, you know, mm-hmm. eventually you got to cut the ties. You do. Yeah. You uh, do. But, uh, you know, it got solved. And so for the families, keep going. Yeah. You're going to find the right, you're going to find that right heart. I just know it. Yeah. And you know, I think that's the, the one, the main thing is the relationship that the police department has built with the community. It, it is. It, it, what, it, what is the beat, the patrol officers, the detectives, the command staff, that relationship with that, with your community is going to help you when these type of investigations happen. And, and when you need public to 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 speak because somebody knows something that you know and you guys have interviewed thousands of, of people and it takes that one person that somebody has built a relationship with to come in and say this is what i know go ahead Keith. right and and it's like uh man it takes it's a big ship and it takes a a, a long time to change the culture but if we don't start doing it today, it's going. It's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. So I think you can do it. And I think even times like, you know, Jackson, uh, Chicago, you see St. Louis, uh, those places, they can do it. You know, it, it just takes a different, different mindset. And it's not, it's, <laughs> man, it's just not that hard to go do the job. Yeah. Uh, the job's hard. I'm not going to say that, yeah. but man, you're only out there eight hours. Go do it. So do you, do you think there are some detectives, uh, Sergeant Walker, that basically just sees, you know, they, they always just another kid, um, you know, another Hispanic kid, another black kid, or it's another white kid that lives in this area. He was, you know, he, we knew eventually something was going to happen to him. Do do you believe that that's prevalent? I shouldn't say prevalent, but do you believe that type of bias does um, happen uh, in law enforcement as far as investigations? Certainly it exists and it's not helpful. And I had to, you know, when you brought up this, this topic, I had to, I said, well, I, I tell everybody with law enforcement, the patrol people, anybody, start assuming something right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Juanita Barra dressed to the nines at three o'clock in the morning, Hispanic woman. Uh, where is she coming from? You assume she's coming from a club or a Hispanic club. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do us any good to, to go somewhere else. Let's go hit those clubs while we're standing around doing nothing. Uh, so assumptions and bias are not the same thing. Correct. Uh, yeah. Because Absolutely. I think you can, you can assume something and get moving and once you're wrong, then, the you know, the evidence doesn't point to that. We just wasted a little bit of time. Bias means, man, I'm just not going to do it because they deserved it or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And that you need to weed that out in, in, in your your squad. Yeah. And never did I have that in my squad. Never did I yeah. have anybody say they deserved it. Yeah. Well, and you, you know, one of the, uh, hold on, Keith, I want to remind those who are just now tuning into the podcast show, uh, tonight's topic is, uh, is there bias in police investigation that we've got on a retired Tulsa police uh, homicide detective, Sergeant Dave Walker on you and the law podcast show. Uh, go, go ahead. Uh, swaggy one. <laughs> no, I was gonna, I was gonna say, you know, Sergeant Walker was saying that, uh, the mother of that victim called, you know, it was I believe he said seven years of, of so for that murder to be solved. 
And as I said previously, it doesn't take a lot just to listen. And and like you said, sometimes the, 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 the victim's family just want to vent and they just want to know that you're, that you haven't forgotten about them. Uh, I've, I have actually heard uh, the, the survivors, victims, family say, I just want to know something. Even if you haven't located any additional information, I just want to know that you're talking, that you're looking for my child's uh, murder, my husband's murder, my daughter's murder. That goes a long way. I, I, I'm telling you, that goes a long way. And I, I, and I don't understand why people... Detectives, some detectives don't take that time to just to just answer. I, I remember one time I had to make it a mandate for detectives to at least take a day or half a day to go through their phone messages or emails and make these calls back just to say, hi, this is what's going on. So that in itself, the communication part and the and the, the humanization, putting, uh, you know, Putting a, a human side with someone makes a big difference. It does. And, you know, the the victim's family is closest to the victim. They're closer than I am. They'll hear things. They know things. Uh, you shouldn't get bogged down on the fact that they don't like us. <laughs> and they're not going to like us if, if we tell them to go solve it yourself. Or your, your child shouldn't. In this instance, uh, the mother believes believes to this day that her son was out selling shoes. Well, drugs have been called a lot of things, belt buckles, tires, <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. shoes. But we, we know from from his, the son's activities, he was out doing dope, but it's a dope rip and a gun rip, and, and he ended up getting killed. Uh, but it doesn't matter. You, no. you just let them believe whatever they're going to believe. That's not yeah. going to change the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we got a couple of comments in the chat room uh, and one of them want to get to if we can put it up here on the screen. Uh, uh, the idea of bias starts with the recognition that uh, per perception plays a role in the direction of any investigation. Yes, culture bias plays a role. Consider how the notion of suspicion leads to confirmation bias. I think it's hard for some uh, investigators to let uh, let go of cases they believe should lead to an, an uh, eventual conviction. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it, it is just the Jackson, Mississippi is what has happened there is very disturbing. And, you know, and not just to, uh, you know, really pound on what we know what's going on in Jackson uh, because there's another clip I want to show uh, and to get your uh, professional uh, uh, experience, your professional advice on that situation, because even as a, you know, there are some things when you get to a, a, a scene of a crime that you look for and uh, this, this other situation Sergeant Walker is, is one that kind of makes you scratch your head. It's kind of like, how did these things uh, get missed? And I'm going to show this clip because, you know, we're coming up, we got about 15 more minutes in the podcast, but I want to play this here because I think it, it, it again, it kind of, we talked about this before, 
when we showed clip about the mothers of Jackson, and then we showed something recent uh, that took place where uh, an off-duty police officer hits a uh, a guy walking across the highway. Uh, a couple of days later, the mother reports him missing, but it took the Jackson Police Department almost seven months to notify her that they had that this incident happened, he went unclaimed and that they buried him. And so it's one of the most disturbing cases that we have talked about on the podcast uh, in quite some time. So let me play this clip real quick. Getting louder tonight for the Justice Department to investigate the death of a Mississippi man run over by a local police car. His family saying they were kept in the dark for months about his whereabouts while they thought he was only missing. Dexter Wade's family says a federal investigation is needed now more than ever after his body was exhumed from a pauper's field this morning at the request of the family, but hours before they were told it would happen, meaning no one but the public works crews were there to witness this. Dexter's mother voicing her frustration earlier today. Listen. Now y'all buried my baby. Y'all took him out the ground. Y'all put him in the ground without my permission. So I don't have no permission. Now, we've been covering this story on this program since NBC News reporter John Shupey broke it last month. Dexter Wade was last seen alive by his mother in March as he walked out of the home they shared. He was killed minutes after that as he tried to cross a nearby freeway on foot. Dexter's mother, though, would spend the next 172 days totally in the dark until police realized they had made, they say, a clerical error in not informing the family. NBC's Blaine Alexander is covering the story for us tonight. Uh, Blaine, talk to us a little bit more about what was supposed to happen with Dexter's body today and then what the family actually experienced instead. Well, Aaron, as you can understand, there is a lot of frustration, a lot of anger from that family tonight, and, and many would say rightfully so. So what was supposed to happen, and this is according to uh, my colleague, John Shupi, who, as you mentioned, broke this story. He was actually there in Jackson covering everything that's happened. Everything was set for 1130 in the morning. That was the understanding. But he said that when crowds started to arrive there, everything had already happened. So not only uh, was Dexter Wade's mother caught off guard, but the family members, they even had a minister show up there. All of them were completely blindsided by the fact that the exemption had already taken place. Now, I understand that all that Dexter's mother, uh, Betterstein Wade, was able to actually witness was the transfer of his remains from the basically the back of the coroner's vehicle into the hearse. So you can understand why the family says that trust is even further broken here. Here's what attorney Ben Crump, who represents that family, had to say today. Take a look. Imagine if this was your loved one who they killed and then bury it without your permission, and then exhumed them after they told you they were gonna respect you this time. Would you trust anybody in Mississippi now? And so there you have him uh, voicing the frustrations on behalf of the family. And of course, Aaron, they said that they wanted to exhume him to have their own private autopsy and then to have a proper burial and a funeral for him as well. Aaron. Yeah, they, he deserves that for sure, Blaine. I, I do want to ask you, too. I mean, we have uh, obviously Attorney Crump there. You have Dexter's family all saying they want to see the DOJ step in here and look into what happened. What might that look like? And has the Department of Justice indicated that this is something that it would look into? 
Well, the investigation would come from the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. That's who they're asking to come in and really just kind of do a thorough review of this entire situation from beginning to end and take a close look at the Jackson Police Department. I've been speaking with uh, a colleague of Ben Crump's today, and he told me that that request has actually formally been made by other people who are affiliated with this case as well. He said that that request has been out there for the past week or so. So now the question is, of course, will the DOJ take this up? How long will that investigation last if it is, in fact, launched? And, of course, what sort of information will it yield? But you can certainly understand why what happened today is further fueling those calls for the DOJ to come in and investigate. That's what we heard from Dexter Wade's mother, his family members, Ben Crump. All of them are saying this is yet another reason why they need some outside eyes to come in. Aaron. All right, Blaine Alexander with us tonight. Blaine, thank you. Thanks for watching. Stay updated about breaking news and top stories on the NBA. So, Sergeant Walker, I want to share this with you. So, this young man was was struck and killed, as the clip stated, by a, an off-duty police officer. A short uh, distance from his house. Yeah, and within, probably within five or ten minutes after him leaving the house. So, he didn't have any ID on him, but inside of his pocket, uh, in his pants pocket, he had a prescription bottle that identified him that the coroner's office found when he got to the coroner's office. The coroner's office calls Jackson and says, hey, we've got this prescription bottle. They traced the where you know, who wrote the prescription, the doctor, the medical provider. They didn't have a good contact number for the mother. Now, a week or two later, the when he, you know, never showed up, the mom reported him missing to the Jackson Police Department. So they've got a missing persons report. So you've got a homicide division, you've got a missing person division, but you've got the name of a person. So what really struck me when we were talking about this was when you detectives respond to a fatality accident, you're going to try to find evidence associated with that person or even just a homicide. You get, you know, I've seen you guys pull out a wallet and now you're able to identify who that, who that victim is. But it was awful strange that that didn't happen with this situation because they would have known within before the coroner's office knew who this person was or to say, here's a prescription bottle and it identifies Here's a name. Is this the person associated with this accident? And it didn't happen. And it took seven months for the mother to be notified by them that this happened. And oh, by the way, we we buried your son in this, you know, in this area. And now uh, if you want his body back, you got to pay us. And now what the clip we just saw was. The family wanted his body to be removed from the grave site so they could have an independent uh, autopsy, and that whole that didn't even go right. So, uh, I, I think one of the questions I want to ask you is: Is that normal for detectives to get to a scene of an of a of an incident and try to determine the identity of a of of, of a person? Well, you have to find it to start the victimology. If this is a hit and run, or I'm not sure it was a hit and run. I think they may have stayed at the scene. But if you don't know who the victim is, you haven't really no place to go. 
So mm-hmm. yes, I, I know in Oklahoma the the medical examiner has the right or has is in charge of the body. So mm-hmm. we really can't start searching the body until the medical examiner gets there. But yes, we got to find out who that is. And yes, mm-hmm. it's it's like I said in the opening clip, we're going to tell somebody your loved one's dead that day or at least the day after, mm-hmm. not seven months later. I, I can't speak to that. I don't know what, what we're covering up or, you know, I, I've dealt with Mr. Crump. I, I don't like uh, some of the things he does, but I'm going to have to agree with him on this one. It just makes mm-hmm. you shake your head. I, I don't understand, you know, two days would be too long. Yeah. And then when the report comes in that you've got a missing kid and you know that that matches up with this name, Mm-hmm. Somebody has to know that we've got to do something, and uh, yeah. I don't know where the buck stops on that one. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, police in one hundred and one is you run the person if, if you run the person's name through the through the RMS if if nothing else, and if there's a missing person, it's going to pop up because it's the it's all in the same same system. Well, well and you know, one of the things. So <clears throat> Jackson is over a hundred thousand people. Uh, City of Tulsa is what? What's the population of Tulsa? It's four hundred thousand. Four hundred thousand. How many uh, homicide detectives are in that unit? We have ten, with the average murder about sixty, sixty-five a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it, you get overrun, but not like Jackson. Yeah. yeah, and and you know Jackson has a you know high. You know, the violent rate is much higher in Jackson than it is even in Tulsa. And Tulsa is a bigger city than Jackson. And I guess, you know, even going back to the mothers uh, of Jackson, their frustration, their pain, their anger, is that obviously things could be done better. And we're, you know, we're just looking at this from our lens to, to say, could things have been done better? Uh and is there any bias in this investigation that these detectives have against the victims? Uh, because what really, even to listen to the retired homicide detectives say, they're not even calling me back. So it's much deeper than just the, the bias in the investigation. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, and I won't, don't want to say incompetence, but if you allow, yeah, it's kind of hard not to know to be the answer. Then, then, then that's going to be the answer because it's a lot easier not to do anything. Yeah, uh, than go out and find the killer. Um, you know, I, I'm looking at a comment though, and I want to get to that in just a second. But we have got to also in these investigations get the right person. You just mm-hmm. can't make an arrest and say we're done with it. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I talk about assumptions, if we assume the wrong thing, we can move on. Mm-hmm. If we convict the wrong person, boy, that just messes. I don't even want to arrest the wrong person. Yeah. Because so facts yeah, yeah. have to, to match up with what we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah Sergeant, I, I would like you to make, you know, a comment regarding, I think, one of the. Uh, Response among the comments is in the in the queue. You can read. I think it's. Uh, I think you were going to talk. It was coming. It says check some data on CNN. A CNN article. 
innocent blacks were 12 times more likely to be convicted than innocent whites. Uh, that said, the topic of tonight's show seemed to be biased to dismiss or stonewall investigations based on race and or class. Maybe my comment didn't fit the fit the topic. And, you know, I, what we were talking about, do we believe there's bias and bias can be anything. It can be implicit. It can be explicit. We're basically talking about, do we believe that there are some cases that detectives uh, aren't willing to put more effort in to, um, and you know, those, those type of, 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 of things that, that, you know, a lot of families want to know, does the race, does, does race come up? Does race play a part? And, and I, and, and I believe, um, uh, we heard Sergeant say, yeah, I mean, it, it, it can, and nobody's denying that, but we're basically talking about, you know, the efforts that people put in uh, based on homicides in cities, uh, are they, you know, are they committed to that? Uh, do they believe that the person got what he deserved, regardless of what ethnicity? So I think that's what we're, we're, we're talking about in, um, in tonight's, on tonight's show. Yeah. Go ahead, Sarge. Well, I, I do think that uh, if in those cities that have, low solve rates that that you're going to have the the attitude you know that you got what you deserved mm -hmm. and that's the easy answer and uh, i i just can't i can't feel that it's race-based but the facts are what they are you know and so yeah um you know some people in some places may say you know you shouldn't have been doing that and robbing or stealing but then again it goes to the fact that that anybody robs and steals um just because the person's color of skin or race or ethnicity does not make it unsolvable that's just not right uh, hispanics talk to us blacks talk to us whites talk to us dopers talk to us it, it's the effort you put into it from the police department and that's where I think we can fix this. You know, don't allow that as a chief, as a sergeant, as a captain, that to be the answer. You hold your detectives accountable. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of it, it starts with the top and it works its way down. I think you, you, you have to have a, a chief, you have to have a command staff that's engaged. You know, we, we have a lot of people under us, but at the same time, uh, if you, you need to, to know what's going on within your department and because it's going to get out and you need to be ahead of it uh than than being behind it so well you know what also you know we talk we always talk about the police department and the chiefs but you got to have a city government that that provides the resources that supports you uh that's willing to trust your expertise uh provide the resources that you need and and you know, I, um, um, you know, someone who is passionate about the city and, and hold the police department accountable, hold mm -hmm. the chief. You know, why why are these I remember meeting with my mayor, you know, him asking questions, the right questions. You know, where are we at? Why haven't we solved these these offenses? How many how often are we contacting the families? Uh, are we returning the families calls? Those are questions that police chiefs need to be asking. 
It's like the detective saying it goes down to the to the deputy chiefs, assistant chiefs, majors, captains, you know, lieutenants and sergeants, and then to the officers. You have to ask those questions. You have to be held accountable uh, in order to uh, your department to be effective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, hey, yeah, it's been uh, man. We're coming up uh, on the last few uh, seconds of the podcast, and uh, we got let me another comment that just came in is that. Do you believe a crime against wealthy white female, a white family will have more effort done compared to an improvised uh, ethnicity minority family? If, if that's for me, I, I don't I think every situation is different. I, I, I can tell you that in the departments that I work for work just as hard for anyone else. It uh, doesn't matter race, ethnicity. It doesn't matter socioeconomic status. Are there departments out there that this matters? Does it get political? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I haven't been affiliated with those so with those departments. So I mean, I can't answer. I can't answer for another for another department. Yeah, but he says in general. I, 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 get, I don't know, Sergeant Walker, if you got uh, you know response to that question in the chat. Well, I really think uh, that. Murders, no, it's not going to matter. Maybe uh, a wealthy family can put some pressure on in a burglary and go to, you know, certain people and say, hey, you know, work this case. You got to work it harder. Um, Property crimes, maybe. Uh, Well, I'm going to say property crimes, yes. I know we had some uh, rich lawyers getting robbed, home invasion robbers. Now, we would work those anyway. But but, we got some special attention from, from our administrative staff. Uh, and how we were going to solve it. Matter of fact, the the chief took uh, two of the detectives out to lunch after we solved it. Uh, <laughs> kind of made everybody else pissed, but you know, uh, so yeah, you know, I would say a social economic status will have an impact, but not on the murders because you know murderers are going to kill again, and there's no telling where they're going to be. So, man, in my opinion, we got to go get them. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey guys, we're. Uh, kind of past our, our normal time and uh sergeant walker i definitely want to thank you for taking the time to uh to come on our podcast and you know i've got some information i want to share with with you and our listeners that uh that we were just informed about a, a week ago there's a publication that comes out about podcasts it's called feedspot and the founder of speed feedspot notified notified us that uh, their uh, their panelists selected our podcast show as one of the, the top uh, podcast platforms uh, that they uh, recognize. And so out of the uh, 45 podcasts, uh, our podcast ranks uh, in the top 10. But why is that? You, you know what? I, I you, you tell me. You tell me. Well, why is well. That? I can tell you this week because of our guest. I can tell you the other weeks because of me. <laughs> well, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you roll with that. Brother. I appreciate I, that. Thank I, you. I'm gonna I'm I'm let truth you roll hurts, with doesn't it? No, the truth doesn't hurt. It, it, right. it doesn't hurt. You know, I couldn't do what I do without you. And I like could. I said, Seagram's zero sugar ginger ale. I'm gonna get a endorsement deal. Well, you keep working on that. You keep All working right. on that. And, right. and also, I need to let those who are listening to the podcast 
uh, know that our podcast is now being carried by a good friend of mine out of Oklahoma City, uh, Kaleidoscope Radio. Uh, our broadcast, our podcasts are being uh, rebroadcast twice a week uh, uh, by Kaleidos- Kaleidoscope Radio Network out of Oklahoma City. And thanks to uh, uh, to Brother Carl King for uh, for reaching out and. He and I had a conversation, and and uh, now people in Oklahoma City can can hear this broadcast and and, and uh, many other uh, uh, broadcasts that we have. So we definitely want to thank everybody for uh, for continuing to support us, and uh, uh, we're, we're definitely branching out a lot more. And uh, you know, Sergeant Walker, you 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 can become a guest on this podcast anytime and you also have a podcast so let our listeners know how they can listen to you in your podcast well it, it's not in the top 10 so you, you've beat me down but <laughs> it, it is, i started a podcast it's more podcasting for a purpose in law enforcement uh it's it solve them when you get them mm-hmm. it's on spotify and, and itunes and, and it's uh right here in studio b you know i said at a bar in my house and uh-huh. And let it go. Uh, I'll be doing one shortly on leadership. So I uh, okay. appreciate the little plug, uh, but uh, but oh, I'm yeah. nowhere near you guys. So oh oh no, hey man, we're we're you know we're not there. We're we're trying to get there, but you know this is something we we're passionate about doing every week, every Thursday, right here on 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 you and the law podcast. And we've got a lot of people who continue to follow us and. The topics, you know, one of the things that we share, uh, Sergeant Walker, is that, you know, we touch on some topics that people just normally don't talk about. And this is one of those topics when you talk about is there bias in police investigations? Uh, And it's not common that you see two law enforcement executives having that conversation. Uh, And I think we just need to be open and honest and be and be transparent, Uh, not just with people. Uh, in our profession, but the the public, you know, they need to know that, hey, there are always two different sides of uh, of policing. So, so guys, uh, we appreciate it, Sergeant Walker, and uh, you know, hopefully I can reach out to you again and uh, get you to come back on and, and, and share some, some of that wisdom that you have and uh, you know, the guy, the group of guys you work with and uh, all those guys, how often do you guys get together? It's kind of unusual. Uh, there's only like one, uh, John Brown. John Brown, who, yeah. Who's with me in narcotics and burglary and robbery and, and homicide. And he's been longer. He's been with me longer than my wife and I. So you, you guys, you guys are kind of like still brothers. hang out. You guys are kind of like brothers. Yeah, yeah, we hang out together. Yeah. Uh, so, but everybody else, you know, we got our own lives, and mm-hmm. boy, we see enough each other work. Enough of yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, Chief uh, Swaggy One, brother, you keep you keep pulling that up there so we can get that endorsement. Hey. <laughs> all right you guys are Walker. great i appreciate the time we appreciate right. you sergeant thank you so much appreciate you and uh again so next week everybody is thanksgiving holiday weekend we will not be airing uh live on a podcast we'll be spending time with our families as well as you will be so we will 
get back together after the Thanksgiving holiday. So we want to, you know, uh, say happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And uh, hopefully, you know, uh, everybody comes together and has a good time. And I know Chief Swaggy One is going to be eating a lot of turkey. I'm not really going to do that, but I am going to say go mob to the men of Phi Beta Sigma and the women of Zeta Phi Beta. I got to I got to send a shout out to them. So, <laughs> all right, all right, then, brother. All right. Well, hey, uh, we will catch everybody uh, the week after Thanksgiving uh, right here on You and the Law Podcast Show, streaming live on Facebook Live. Have a good Have a good holiday. <laughs>